Welcome to episode 102 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined for the 102th time by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a nice little chill week we have here. A smorgasbord of like tiny little canapes, but you know, it's nice to have a, a quiet one after really kind of being nonstop since like Indian Wells. I, so. I agree. I think like the invite for this week would say like substantial hors d'oeuvres on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, really tasty. Yeah. I love finger foods. Mm-hmm. I really do. Um, you know, a deep fried truffle mac and cheese. Who doesn't love that? Tasty. Go, go for, go for seconds, go for thirds, I say, but on the whole, a uh, pretty quiet week. Yeah, pretty much. It's one of those ones where you, after you leave this week, you kind of hit the drive through on your way home. Yeah, exactly. And it's like nice because this then becomes the week where I actually like get life stuff in order mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to having to focus all the time on tennis. So it is lovely. Life is good. And especially with us leaving for Europe relatively soon, relatively, uh, yeah. it's good to have time for life because life is nice. Life is nice. It can be. can be. I mean, you know, live your life. Go do your thing. I feel like a lot of players were doing that same thing segue. So we'll go talk about them on this show. We're going to talk about the Medium-sized tournaments last week in Stuttgart and Barcelona, won by Angelika Kerber and Kenny Shikori. We're also going to talk about various questions about all sorts of things you guys have for us, and we'll have a nice little show for you here. Ready to ready to slide into this this clay episode, Courtney? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's start with Germany in the biggest tournament in Germany. Weirdly, uh, is Stuttgart. I guess not weird, but it's just you think they'd have more. They have a lot of quant- they, need to ha- they need to have one in Berlin. It's just so ridiculous it that really there's is. only Stuttgart. Yeah, it really is. Well, Stuttgart and Nuremberg or whatever. And I guess the men have the yeah. 500 in Hamburg, but not enough. Not not enough relevant tournaments in Germany for what a tennis-loving people they are. So, But they love their Angelique Kerber. And as Pekovic predicted when she pulled out of the tournament, which was prescient, Angelique Kerber won the tournament, beating Maria Sharapova in... Sharapova's first match, and then marching her way to the title, beating Caroline Wozniacki in what was a final that very few probably would have predicted when the draw came out. So, Courtney, what were your thoughts on how the week played out in Stuttgart? Well, I mean, I think the most interesting, there's two big takeaways, well, three big takeaways for me from Stuttgart. First of all, Angelique Kerber totally listens to No Challenges Remaining. (laughs) Because she is very well aware of the fact that I completely wrote her off a few weeks ago in a nice way of kind of saying, don't panic about like her three month slump, because maybe that's just how good she is. <laughs> in a nice way of being like, no, 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 you're not supposed to be any good. Which right. is nice. It's, it's yeah. cool. Don't worry. You know, kind of helping take the pressure off Angelique Kerber's shoulders um, and has just gone on a complete tear. 11 straight matches. She's now won since the tour has turned to clay, uh, winning Charleston, then winning her one match uh, in Fed Cup. Um, and I still say, how do you not play Angelique Kerber on day one of Fed Cup? Marber Rittner, I don't get it. We know. We know. And I know. And then... Uh, just really uh, playing great all through Stuttgart uh, to win that title. So arguably the biggest title of her career, and I think the most impressive run that she's had at any tournament, I'd say for Kerber. Yeah. Yeah, so massive. So obviously she listens listens to NCR, and you're welcome. We're glad that we can motivate you, you know, anytime. You just let us know mm-hmm. when you need more. Secondly, when we talk about tennis and the concept of home court advantage and playing in front of your home crowd it's a complicated in other sports it's like obviously considered a positive right right but in tennis it's it's not always necessarily seen as a positive and players are very open about feeling the pressure of playing at home because they don't do it every other week the way that that happens in major sports right other sports but weirdly Angelique Kerber actually is totally clutch on home on home soil or in front of crowds that are behind her. It really gets her up. And I've noticed this throughout her career, but it really distilled for me uh, last week in Stuttgart. Just, um, you know, she was pretty empty in her last couple of matches. And for her to will herself to win down 3-5 in the final set, two points from a loss to Caroline Wozniacki with Wozniacki serving at 5-3-30 all in the third set. Kerber somehow manages to 
just play inspired tennis to reel off, I think, the last four games. Um, and Wozniak didn't even play those last four games badly. She didn't play them the way she should have, which we'll get to point three, but uh, she didn't play them badly. So that was really impressive. And, and you could tell how much winning at home mattered to Kerber in the post-match on-court interview. Like, she literally took the mic away from Heinz Gunthardt and, like, was just, like, so animated in thanking the crowd and thanking everyone and Seriously, Angelique Kerber does ne- just never does that. <laughs> she never so. like <laughs> grab the mic. Kerber has never been her nickname. <laughs> should be, should be, but never has been. Right. So, uh, so yeah, it meant a lot to her. So those were that's kind of the Kerber aspect of things. The third point was was about Caroline Wozniacki, and she played just an incredible tournament, and a tournament that we don't we don't expect from her on this surface, the surface that she should be perfectly fine on, but she just hasn't been in the past. Uh, she joked after winning her second match in Stuttgart that she had already won uh, more matches uh, on clay this year too than she had in the year before one. I joked, you mean stated facts, but yes. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, um, but she played great, and it was so cool to see her do it. I mean, she beat best pure clay quarter on the WTA tour at the moment, Simona Halep, um, in three sets. Beat Carlos Suarez Navarro. I believe she beat Safarova as well. I mean, that's all. those are quality wins on a surface that's not her best. And then came within two points of beating Kerber. And she did it playing the right way. And she was aggressive. She was, there was more, a little bit more variety in her game. We know about her defense, which she played impeccably throughout the week. Just, I mean, she made some plays on some balls that were just incredible. But we saw... At the end, when things got tight against Kerber, and even when she was in a winning position, up 5-3, up a break in that final set, we saw it a little bit back. Uh, we saw a little bit what we saw last year in Singapore when um, when she was in a pretty good position against Serena, where she played the right way. And then when things got tight and you start to see in those pressure moments kind of the true quote unquote character of a player, yeah. uh, you see it again, which is that she got passive. And she she dropped into a defensive shell and she kind of was hoping Kerber was going to miss. And that's not necessarily a bad gamble in that situation. Kerber wasn't playing at her best in the third set. Yeah, maybe she does miss. But Kerber smartly stepped in, tried to take advantage of points, hit bigger shots. And fortune favors the brave. And it favored Kerber in the end. And Wozniacki seemed to admit as much in her post-match interview that, you know, she got she 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 didn't she wasn't aggressive enough in the final few games of that third set. But hopefully she leaves knowing that that's the way you got to play. That is the secret. That's the thing that's been missing in your game the entire year is this aggressive intent. Um, and I really look forward to seeing what she can do over the next couple of weeks. Because if she does well, you know, she, the French Open's wide open for the most part. So so there's no reason that she can't land on the short list of possibly winning that tournament. No, totally. And it's great. I think they're actually pretty parallel runs in the sense that both Kerber and Wozniacki have games that you would think would be good on clay, but never have been. And for both of them to sort of translate their counterpunching into clay success this week was promising or good to see because these are players who, with their speed, with their defense, should be look like archetypal clay court players. And they haven't been able to do anything. Wozniacki especially. There's no reason why, after some decent early career success, I mean, she made a Madrid final really early in her career, beat, losing to Dinara. There's no reason why she shouldn't have been better on clay. Show early returns, you want to credit to Arancha, whatever. It was a big step forward in a season that, like we said, had plateaued a little bit from what our expectations had been at the end of 2014. So for Wozniacki, that was big. And for Kerber, sustaining this all was huge, especially just from a basic week-in, week-out point of view. Having her upset the top seed in the top seed's first round and then go on to win the tournament, that never happens. It really doesn't. People don't back up surprise wins early on all the way through a tournament to the title. And so even though she's obviously not your average upsetter because she's a top 20 player with a great pedigree, to see her carry that through and not be satisfied at any point with the result was big. And so hopefully she gets some rest in the next few weeks because she has earned it and can be a relevant person to look for in Paris. Same with Wozniacki. So those are, like you said, Courtney, I agree. Those are two players who put themselves on, at the very least, a list of dark horses for what was already a very intriguing French Open. Most definitely. And one thing I wanted to add, too, about Wozniacki that one of the people that I follow on Twitter, Mark Allen Nixon, tweeted, which I hadn't really thought about, but I think is is absolutely accurate. And he's a big Caroline Wozniacki fan. With Tennis TV's edition, or not Tennis TV, but Perform, uh, the company that produces WTA matches, since they've hired Vladimir Ularova 
as a commentator who she's great. She's very enthusiastic, um, knows her tennis, knows her stuff, knows the dramatic points of a, of a match. It's fantastic. But one thing that she really, really adds is that she actually understands Polish. She knows a lot of languages. She knows a lot of languages. Yeah. And so when she commentates matches for Wozniacki, she can actually tell you what Peter Wozniacki is saying. And as Mark Allen Nixon pointed out, now that we know what he's saying, like at least those of us who were English speakers who had no idea what he was saying before and we just made fun of him because of all the gestures and everything, yeah. he's actually not crazy. He actually <laughs> gives really good, like on-point advice to Caroline in those coaching timeouts. And so that's been a bit of a revelation. And so I thought that was great. But you mentioned Arancha Sanchez, Vicario, Ben. And, and yeah, I, I kind of was a little, I don't know, uh, gun shy of be- making this all about Arancha. You know, like, oh, she pairs up with Arancha Sanchez Vicario right. and she makes her first clay finals since Brussels 2011 and blah, 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 blah. I don't really know if that's a connection that can be made quite yet. But at the same time, cause and effect. I mean, it's hard to see what's necessarily changed from the Wozniacki pre-clay to the one now other than Arancha and she's playing much better tennis. So that was definitely notable. Let's use that brief moment of talking about star power coaches. I think part of the reason why... I didn't see the Arancha pairing and be like, oh, yeah, now she'll win the French is because of the non-success of the Redvonska-Navratilova pairing, which came to an end this week um, after Redvonska lost a very tough straight set match uh, to Sarah Arani, which is an incredibly tough first round draw on clay. I mean, Stuttgart, people don't give it enough credit. It does get credit, but not enough for how it is like the Thunderdome of the WTA in terms of the draw. It's the toughest tournament on tour. I mean, outside of like the WTA finals, I guess, but it's it's ridiculous. I mean, Sharapova Kerber was opening. Yeah, was an opening round match for for Sharapova. What kind of tournament should Sharapova have to start against Kerber? You know, yeah. that's ridiculous. So and uh, for a while, the, yeah. a first round match that was supposed to happen in uh, in Stuttgart was supposed to be number ten versus number eleven. Yeah, Pekovic. Suarez Navarro Suarez, versus Pekovic, yeah. which again, that was a Miami semifinal a few weeks ago. So. <laughs> A little nutty. No, exactly. So Radvanska and Navratilova split up. We talked about Radvanska in our slumper episode a few weeks ago. She is still not winning matches, and something had to give, I guess, for Radvanska. Were you? I, I was not personally surprised by the news just because of the results, and I guess you know the lack of. I want to say this might be unfair, but lack of warm fuzziness between the two. Not that there need to be, but it wasn't like signs that they were super enjoying it. I guess. Uh, were you surprised by the by the news of the split, Courtney? Wasn't surprised by the news of the split, but was surprised that, okay, because if you go back to when Redvanska hired Navratilova back in December, it was yeah. early December when she made the announcement, it was agreed that this was really about slam performance, that this was about, you know, Navratilova wasn't a day-to-day coach, obviously. Radvanska has uh, Viktorovsky, um, and uh, Martina has all these other commitments, so it wasn't going to be full-time anyway, or even even partially full-time. It was really about coaching to get ready for the majors. So it's just really odd that, okay, she loses in a really, in three sets to Venus Williams at the Australian Open, but that last set was really terrible. Um, yeah. But otherwise, like, do we tag all of the stuff that she's done outside of the majors on Martina? Like, that's weird. And then on top of that, like, we're about to go into the French, which is obviously Aga's worst surface, uh, worst slam. And then we're going to go into Wimbledon, which is her best, and obviously where Martina was so good. Right. Why wouldn't you stick around and t- through Wimbledon? Like, it didn't make sense to me that it happens, like, either it happens immediately after the Australian Open or it happened after Wimbledon. But having it happen now, to me, that's just straight up panic from Radvanska. Like, I just get the sense that she has absolutely no freaking clue as to what's going on with her career right now. The schedule that I had been told that Navratilova would be doing with Radvanska during the year uh, before the season started was Sydney, Australia, Indian Wells, Miami, French Open, Eastbourne, Wimbledon. So, like, why fire during this break? You know, they weren't supposed to be working together between Miami and the French anyway. So ditching her after a loss in Stuttgart, I just don't get. Yeah, and I agree with you, Courtney. Like, if you say, like, okay, it's not showing dividends yet, but why not wait until it's actually the surface where Martina can make the biggest impact? Now, it's possible these are just totally irreconcilable personality differences, which I am completely willing to believe, totally given that we that, yeah. always thought this was going to be a weird sort of personality mix, these two. Martina being super intense and emotional and very, very competitive and in your face kind of about that and all that stuff. And Radvanska being, you know, ultimately super, super low 
pulse, you know, no emotion, all that stuff. It was not a, a match that made immediate sense, and that might have just been the ultimate downfall as well. The writing might have always been on the wall with those two. I mean, of, of all of the kind of um, coaching pairings that happened, both, you know, quote-unquote celebrity coaching pairings or not, that happened especially in the WTA, um, you know, before the season or early in the season, I don't think there was one that was more like, huh, I don't know, than Radvanska Navratilova. So not because, like, they wouldn't necessarily have good results, but because the personalities never made sense. You know, these yeah. were two, you know, Martina's incredibly blunt, a little bit kind of sarcastic in the way that she is, maybe is not the right one to get certain things through to Radvanska. And so, yeah, it was never, the, the hiring was surprising, the firing wasn't surprising, the timing of it all definitely was. You tag along, not just letting go of Navratilova, but also, as you said, Ben, an early round loss to Arani, which, you know, not that bad. It was on clay. What are you going to do? And then also now today, news came out of Poland that Witkarowski has resigned as Fed Cup captain mm. for Poland. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot. It all seems to point to a lot of, of soul searching uh, within the Redvanska team. And again, hard to ignore. Also, just another poor Fed Cup performance from Agnieszka Redvanska um, a couple of weeks ago where she lost to, really badly to Tomea Baczynski and her father, Robert, let loose and basically criticized everyone about uh, for ruining his daughter's career, called for Witkarowski's resignation from the Fed Cup team, said if, if he had any like class or something like that, he would step down himself. All these sorts of things Ooh. said that Navratilova didn't uh, wasn't around long enough. How could she possibly have any impact on his daughter's career? All these things. I still think, and I think when we discussed Radvanska a few weeks ago, I still think that this is a Vitkarovsky Radvanska issue. Uh, the Navratilova thing is a total red herring. Yeah, I agree. You know, so something has to, I think, maybe change uh, between those two, but we'll see. That would be my read on it too. I mean, just yeah. for. Aga, it's been – she's running out of time in her career. I mean, she's not – she's in her peak right now in terms of age. And with her sort of slow, long match style of play, she will have – she has a lot more wear and tear on her than a lot of players would at this stage of her career because she's also played a pretty heavy schedule. And, yeah, I mean, she need, is has hit a ceiling, I think, with Viktorovsky. So we'll see what kind of direction she goes in from there. I think she'll probably – I would be surprised if she made any sort of big, huge change in the near future – but well, time will tell. Speaking of players who are struggling, which you probably mentioned in Stuttgart, Maria Sharapova, who did lose, I believe, her three, third straight match for the first time in like 600 matches. Some incredible stat that she just not, has not had losing streaks. Obviously, she came in to Stuttgart without any prep at all after in terms of matches since Miami, where she was clearly dealing with uh, upper leg injury. Is there a reason for longer term, even just meaning through the French panic for Sharapova? Or do you think that she's going to find her footing in this? It's just a pothole. I don't know if she'll find her footing, but I'm not, I don't think that she necessarily played poorly in Stuttgart yeah. either. Um, if you watched the final set, she should have, Maria Sharapova really should have cleaned that match up in, two, in straight sets. She was playing great in the second set, just really couldn't find a way to break through. But the real difference was she went, um, 0 for 1 on her break point in the second set, and uh, Kerber went 1 for 1. Like, that's how slim of a margin that second set was. And then by the third set, Kerber was just, I mean, this was peak Kerber on a level that was laughable. Like, I was watching the match live, and I kept cracking up to the point where, like, I don't know, people at my house thought I was crazy. Like, they thought I was watching, like, a comedy show. I was like, no, I'm just laughing because she's playing so good. And then later in the evening, my dad was actually watching the replay of the match on tennis TV. And he and my mom were laughing, like because some of the shot making from Kerber in the third set was insane. So I think that within the context of how well Kerber played, I think that and the fact that she did go on to win the title, I think that there's a bit of a caveat to Maria's um, result. And I didn't think she played that poorly. Now, do I still think that she's like the do I think at all that she's the favorite to win the French Open? No. I think that it's no matter what happens really over the next couple few weeks, um, that's going to be a pretty wide open race, yeah. I would expect. So, but I am curious to see how she does um, in Madrid, particularly. And I think that will be the good gauge because she needs the one thing that she needs. Well, the two things that she needs going into 
Paris are uh, health, which she came out of, I mean, after one match, but it was a physically grueling match. She said she was fine. Um, and then confidence. So she needs to get those wins. And, and if she were to, be, were to be able to defend her title in Madrid, I think that would be pretty massive for her. Yeah. Talking about the French Open favor on the women's side, you're saying it's not Sharapova. Would you put, I would put Serena ahead of Sharapova at this point, yeah, assuming there's no I injury would. concerns for either going forward. Uh, you would too? I would too. I would How too. About I mean, I, yeah, I mean, if I had to call it right now, I'd probably say Serena, Halep, and then Sharapova. Simply, and maybe that's just more because of me, like really not accepting Claypova as a concept. Right. You know, like there's a part of me that's just like, I don't know. Over the course of two weeks, I mean, I still think Halep and Serena have the have the games that can be consistent, can consistently win seven matches in Paris. So that's how I would rank it. But I, but even though I rank it that way, I still think it's wide open. Agreed. On the men's side, the big tournament was Barcelona, which was won for the second time by Kaney Shikori, which inspired this question from Albert Chen, who says, you guys should really talk about Kaney Shikori now that he has successfully defended his title in Barcelona. First Japanese player into the top five. How does he compare with Lina? Nishikori reminds me of David David Ferrer and Nikolai Davidenko. How do you think it compares to those two? Any way you want to take that, Courtney. You're, I know you've been following Kay pretty closely during this rise, his whole rise, and you watch him a lot. Um, what do you make of him defending a title, and then not a small title? Yeah, well, first of all, let's let's be nice to Kay. Let's not compare him to Nikolai Davidenko. Is that um, a bad comparison, you think? I mean, because Davidenko was game... a guy who hit number three, won a few Masters titles, you know, not a horrible and was player. Never, and was never a threat at the majors. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, when we look back, I mean, Ferrer is, is I think I don't think anybody's ever going to be sad about being being compared to David Ferrer. I think that that's always going to be a compliment, especially if you're a dog. Yeah. Yes, exactly. If you're a terrier. Yeah. With Davidenko, I can see that obviously kind of game wise. But I mean, I would if I was Kane Shikori, I would like to go down as maybe a, a player that had a better career than Nikolai Davidenko. Yeah, with Kei Nishikori, he continues to put together these little pockets of success that are kind of narrative busting in a way. So when you think of Kei Nishikori in the abstract, right, it's like, oh, he's undersized. He's really fast. He's super fragile. Mentally, he can kind of go at times. He's not like super intimidating as a competitor. Like, I don't know. That's kind of the sense that I get when people talk about Kei Nishikori. And you look at then numbers and you're like, well, all of that's bullshit. Like he has the best, you know, uh, best of five or best of three record in the open era. His third set record something. is unbelievable. Yeah, his three yeah, set, like, third set record, really. Yeah. Something like that. Like whatever it is, like final decisive set. He has like a, an incredible record. He's 21 and one now as the number one seed of a tournament. That's pretty good. That's impressive. If you think about somebody who like people kind of think like, oh, he's you know, who knows what to expect from Kaini Shikori. Like, well, he's 21-1 as a top seed. Like, that's pretty clutch. That's reliable. That's what that is. Yeah, reliable. So those are two stats that go in that direction, mm -hmm. that he's incredibly reliable. Barcelona is the second straight tournament for him that he's successfully defended. After so Memphis. it's not even like... Yeah. yeah, Memphis. So it's not even like that whole concept of defending a title really bothers him. You know, like, he doesn't, like, stress out about it. So it's just funny that he has this way of kind of putting together these little pockets of success that make you think that yeah this guy is not he's written about or discussed in a way that actually is not entirely true you know here I'll, I'll put this question to you ben okay because i know kind of where you stand on the whole djokovic nadal thing so is kaini shikori the biggest threat to, to novak djokovic or is he a bigger threat to novak djokovic in paris than rafa nadal absolutely not no okay <laughs> no but i did see someone suggest on twitter and i have no i don't remember who at all but I can totally, totally see a scenario in which there is like a Djokovic-Nadal quarter or even semi and then the winner loses to Nishikori in the next round. I can totally see that happening. Mm, yeah. I mean, Nishikori is someone, I mean, he's like getting top of the fragility in last year after making the Madrid final and should have won it because he was up in the second set before getting hurt. Um, and Nadal sort of skated through, got lucky to win that final. After that, Nishikori was injured and lost first round of the French. So assuming knock on wood that he stays healthy, I think he's totally someone who you can sort of pencil into the later stages of the French and who will not give these guys an easy match on clay. Proven to be a really good surface for him. 
and he can do big things there. I think so. No, I, I still, I still have, even though I'm picking Djokovic to win the French at this point, Nadal is, it has a lot of separation between himself and whoever's third. I'm not even sure it's Nishikori actually. I was going to say, like, what? Where would you handicap Nishikori's uh, chances in Paris, assuming he's healthy? Yeah, assuming he's healthy. I mean, I would, I would put him probably level, roughly, and a, not with not much separation between him and like a Federer, Murray, Ferrer, in terms mm-hmm. of ability to make the semis, let's say, okay. um, or even like, or even Aronich is done well. I mean, I don't think Nishikori has really distanced himself that much at slams. I mean, he still only has one slam semi to his name which was the U.S. Open final last year. For sure. So, And, and yeah. that's always going to be the, the... I think that that's why discussing Nishikori is always really difficult because he hasn't been able to maintain long stretches of top-level play because he gets injured. And so it's like, yeah, he has these little breakout pockets, right? I mean, what he did at the U.S. Open last year was absolutely incredible, beating Raonic, Djokovic, and Vavrinka, um, and doing it how he did it in five sets against Vavrinka, five sets against Raonic. I mean, resilient run. And then he loses to Chilich. And then, you know, last year on clay, he like runs through Barcelona. He makes the Madrid final. He beats Ferrer en route to that final in a great, crazy match. And he gets hurt again. And so it's it's all it's such a deflating thing. Yeah. I think for Nishikori, because he he does build he has these momentum building runs only to be beset by injury. And so, it, therefore, it becomes really hard to kind of be like, how good are you? I mean, I think I know how good you are, but I kind of actually don't because I don't have enough data points, I guess, in a way. I, I don't know if it's sustainable over time. Yeah, so. it's been the same thing for his whole career. I mean, remember, he won his first title back years ago in Delray Beach, beating James Blake in the final. So he's been somebody who's been kind of on the radar as a player who can win things, even though Delray is not much, you know, for a long time and just has always hit that sort of stumbling block. At some point, I'm interested in the middle part of Albert's question, actually, um, where he says, how does he compare with Lina? I think in terms of just like cultural significance, they come from they're very different in that. Yeah. Nishikori, just from just from a pure tennis point of view, Nishikori comes from a culture in Japan, which already had a pretty established tennis tradition. I mean, Tokyo has been a core stop on the tours since the 70s, at least. Uh, you know, Japanese players were doing well uh, in before the open era, like in the teens and 20s uh, before World War Two, I guess, really. Yeah, there's no I think the sort of setup he has. I don't think he's as revolutionary a player in that sense, um, in that he's not coming out of nowhere and building something from nothing. And the sort of star potential he has if he does break through to make that one next step, because he absolutely can win a slam this year. I think there's a more of a infrastructure and scaffolding in place for him to be right there on top without having to be totally an explosion of all new things. Yeah, no, I, I think you nailed nailed it. I mean, he's obviously an incredibly significant presence on the ATP tour. I, I know that the ATP is very excited oh, yeah. about what Kaney Shikori brings to the table. And that excitement is very similar um, to what happened when Lina won the French Open on the WTA side. The difference, of course, is... China population, 1.357 billion as of 2013. Japan's population, 127.3 million. The impact of a single Li Na in terms of single-handedly in a lot of ways opening up the entire Chinese market for not just the WTA, but for the ATP as well, Mm -hmm. is absolutely massive, especially given how much developing wealth and growth there is in terms of opportunity within China. So in terms of like a historical figure that absolutely changed the landscape of tennis like there's like before lena and after lena lena kind of wins <laughs> on every single metric there but i mean we'll see with kenny shikori going forward I, I i remember reading an article i think maybe two weeks ago maybe three weeks ago i believe i want to say it was in forbes but it, it might not have been in forbes but some sort of financial based uh, newspaper or magazine about how it'll be interesting to see whether or not kenny shikori can make an impact in america in terms of sponsorships and um, like American companies and more Western companies, because almost all of his his uh, sponsors are are pretty much. I mean, he has Jaguar and Tag Heuer, but um, a lot of the money is coming from from Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether or not he can kind of uh, develop a worldwide kind of brand, which I'm interested to see. I, I genuinely don't know, but that'll be interesting, and that could change things. I mean, if he becomes a Asian athlete 
that has a very strong international worldwide imprint, I think that's pretty yeah, massive. That's pretty massive, especially if he can parlay that into, you know, like a huge Nike deal or something someday and become yeah. a real face of sport in that way. That right, those like a Yao Ming kind right, of way. Yeah. And people say, yeah, but again, that's China. I mean, the reason why it happens is because these Chinese athletes give you access to China. Kane Shakur does not give you access to China. Yeah, it's it's harder. His market imprint in terms of the, the dollars available is different. But yeah, it'll be interesting. Speaking of Asian tennis, also, I saw his name before the show. Quick shout out to Hyun Chung of Korea, who is out of nowhere up to 88 in the ATP rankings after like absolutely crushing every challenger imaginable in the first third of 2015. He was, yeah, he just won the Savannah Challenger. Right. He won Savannah. He won a few in Australia uh, after the Australian Open. He nearly qualified for the Australian Open losing to Emer in what was a really good uh, mm-hmm. final round qualies match there. For someone who I was pretty much unaware of before this year, he's doing <laughs> yeah. big things. So there's another name to watch, and he'll be main draw at the uh, at the French. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, just uh, he's a he's a player that I was pretty much unaware of before this year. Another player who's had a pretty solid couple of weeks, Andre Rublev. Yep. Who uh, seventeen years old, number one ranked junior currently? Yeah. I believe. I did. I did know Rublev. Rublev. Had been I, I was aware of Rublev while. more than Chung for sure. Yeah. But because um, I've seen Rublev play in juniors, but um, he got another win today in Istanbul, main draw against uh, Zumer. So you know he's he's kind of racking things up, still ranked obviously outside the top two hundred. But um, but it's it's exciting. It's fun to see these guys crack through. Uh, although it does open up a discussion down the road whether or not you know with Chung pretty much getting himself into the top 100 inside the top 90 on the strength of challengers, whether or not that should be possible. I know that's been a discussion among, I've heard among coaches, ATP level mean? coaches. Just in terms of their, you shouldn't be able to count that many points from challengers? Yeah, that basically you shouldn't be able to inflate your ranking off of challengers because you, if you haven't done anything on the ATP tour, that's kind of deceptive in a lot of ways. I think I'm fine with somebody hitting 88 um, because that's, you know, just not that far inside slam qualifying. I think where challengers become a little more problematic is when you see something like a Manorino last fall mm. went to go play successfully and good on him all power to him vultured uh I want to say Charlottesville and Lexington or something like that to fall challengers and no other top 50 or top 70 players were playing and just sort of ran rough rough shot through those and got his ranking into like the top 40 moved from like 65 to 40 or something off of that and that's where it seems like much more of a problematic inflation to move in that part of the rankings with it than for Chung to go from 150 to 90-ish. But, you know. That's fair. No, that's yeah. fair. I, I don't really – I'm pretty agnostic about it. I haven't given the whole idea of it much thought. But it, I know it's a it's a question and a, and a discussion that, that percolates um, amongst the people who do know. Totally fair. Um, yeah, I so think Chung, I Chung did went around in uh, – Houston, uh, Miami, I think too. Did he? I think Maybe. He was, no, he Definitely won one in Miami. Houston. Yeah. So he's doing things. I mean, I'm just curious to see what he can do against the the big boys more often now that he won't be playing as many challengers going forward. Yeah. Uh, speaking of children, uh, just to sidebar quickly, Nick Kyrgios in Portugal got away with more bad behavior. Reports are that he was playing Albert Ramos uh, and already received a couple code violations, and they did something else that would merit another one deep in the match. Did not get any penalty for it, which would have been a penalty, I think a game penalty at that point, which would have cost him the tiebreak, and he went on to win the match. Kyrgios is not, it's an interesting part of the year. We've never seen him as a clay quarter before. Uh, he lost in Barcelona to Emer first round. So is there a reason, I mean, what, what should we make of, I guess, bad boy Nick and non-enforcement? I know Rafa, as you've alluded to on Twitter, would be cranky about it. He would be cranky about it. I mean, honestly, welcome back, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't I mean, just because I like I don't think that you should be smacking balls out of the stadium or cussing up a storm. I don't have a problem with smacking balls out of the stadium. Actually, cursing up a storm is probably a little bit more of an issue. And I think he I mean, Nick was pretty special. He got code violations for three different uh, types of codes, which was I think one was racket. First was racket abuse. Second was audible obscenity. And then third was uh, supposed to be a uh, ball abuse mm-hmm. uh, in that tiebreaker, which the umpire didn't see and didn't uh, give him the code and Ramos completely unraveled. Um, but uh, just because I disagree, I don't think that players should be doing that doesn't mean that I'm not entertained by it. Like, I, it does crack me up. So if 20-year-old Nick Kyrgios wants to do what 19-year-old Nick Kyrgios did for for a year, fine by me. It's entertaining. I mean, at some point, though, 
this is now, as you, I think, mentioned, Ben, on Twitter, that this is now the second time that Nick Kyrgios probably should have received a significant penalty that should have probably cost him a match. Um, and didn't because the umpires weren't paying attention. So at that point, I mean, it's slide or let, yeah, it, or let slide. it slide. And it's like, well, at some point you can't dispatch, you know, extra umpires to Rafa matches to like time his time between points and like completely look the other way with Kyrgios. He's pretty much already, even though he's now 20, developed a pretty extensive rap sheet. Like you kind of know that something is going to happen with Kyrgios when the matches get tight. So you should probably be paying attention a little bit more. Um, are there really extra umpires at Rafa matches? There are. There, I've seen them. Yeah, but not like actually officiating during the match. No, not officiating. Like, they're, they're, they're monitoring. They're like, monitoring. Yeah. They're monitoring. Yeah. So, which obviously just, you know, kind of gives you the heads up that this is a, a point of discussion that they're trying to crack down on in terms of Rafa. And taking so, time. And taking time, yeah. So with Nick, it's like, come on, you guys. You got to be, you got to be better than that. You got to, you got to crack down. That just that's just dumb and you know in those situations especially this one where it's not this isn't like a not up call or even an accidental net touch call that the umpire doesn't see and maybe there's an argument the player genuinely has no idea whether or not they did something wrong or right like in this situation Nick Kyrgios knows he hit the ball out of the stadium that is a code like whether the umpire sees it or not that is a code like that's just dumb first of all it's reckless, and he should he should and he should have gotten caught, and it would have taught him a lesson, hopefully. Yeah, and and now he escapes and avoids that lesson, avoids learning anything. I'm not saying that he should like throw the match, and well, I don't know, I don't know if I'm saying it or not, but there is an argument in the Tim Smeechek School of Sportsmanship that you know, you know, you just you just like stepped over the line, and you do you call the code on yourself? Probably not, but there's an argument that says maybe you do, especially once know. Ramos starts arguing about it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's fair. Speaking of problematic behavior and Rafael Nadal, let's we didn't mention the other notable result in Barcelona, which was Nadal losing early to Fanini. For the second time this year, Nadal lost to Fanini, which is not something I said I expected to utter at the beginning of 2015. Uh, Fanini beat him, and it wasn't that surprising, I don't think. Because, I mean, last show, I had mentioned Fanini looming as a possible tough second opponent because he'd already beaten him this year, and Rafa has looked shaky. And Rafa continued to look shaky, and Fanini won relatively straightforwardly for a Rafa upset, I would say. You saw that match, Courtney. How would you assess everything Rafa just going one move the ball one week forward, I guess. It doesn't have to be big. but Sure. I mean, I thought it was still... Yeah, no, I think it was a surprising loss for Rafa. Rafa played like shit. He basically said as much. Terrible match from him uh, against Fanini. I mean, Fanini didn't even have to play like out of his mind. Fanini played out of his mind to beat Rafa in Rio. Fanini did not play out of his mind to beat Rafa in straight sets in Barcelona, which tells you a little bit about how terrible Rafa played that match. So to me, the result was surprising. It was surprising, especially after Rafa, I thought, had a pretty a good confidence boosting week in Monte Carlo, despite the loss to Djokovic to then come into Barcelona and play that poorly of a match. That's not, that's not good. That's not, you know, you, what you would hope is that you see consistent progression from week to week. That doesn't necessarily mean he goes and wins Barcelona, but maybe if he plays, I don't know, a Ferrer in the final or, or Nishikori in the final or Ferrer in the semifinals, he plays a really, really good match and loses. Okay, fair enough. So yeah, so it was surprising. I still am not entirely panicked. It's, I'm a little bit more panicked than I was maybe a week ago. For Rafael Nadal, but uh, but we're going to see. I, I I genuinely, I don't know yet, but we'll see after Rome. I don't know. I mean, it, by the time Rome rolls around or at the end of Rome, the, that week between the French and the Italian Open, it very easily could be that I'm sitting here on the microphone saying, like, there's no way Rafael Nadal's going to win the French Open. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that I'm not willing to make that call now. Yeah, you've, been, you, you've used the P word in terms of panic a lot with Nadal mm-hmm. in terms of just how to discuss him. What would it, I guess, what would it take for you to panic, quote-unquote, about Rafael Nadal going into the French? I think if if from Monte Carlo until, and then now we have the result in Barcelona, so if in Madrid and Rome he plays like shit, I don't care about results and wins and losses. Like, I, I'm not really concerned about, like, that necessarily. But if he just plays as poorly a match as he played against Fonini for the next two weeks, then you th- I think you have a significant issue. Because if he can't find the court, with his shots, like just basically 
then that's a problem. It doesn't matter how much he wants it or how competitive he wants to be. Like, that's going to be an issue. And um, so that's what I'm looking for a little bit more. If he goes into both Madrid and Rome and he loses to Novak in the semis or the finals, like, I'm again, I'm not panicked because it's like, okay, well, how did he play those matches? Was he close? Was he in it? Is there reason for him to believe that he can, you know, take one step better or two steps better, you know, in Paris? But... Yeah, if he if he plays like as, as poorly as he played against Fanini for the next two weeks, then I think you have a, a significant uh, a significant problem. One uh, sort of issue that's coming up, especially if he doesn't win a title one of the next two weeks, because he has sixteen hundred points to defend in his next two tournaments, having won Madrid and finaled Rome, is his seeding coming up at the French Open. If Nishikori does well at all at those tournaments, uh, I mean, if Nishikori does well at those tournaments, or if some combination of Ronich or something happens, Nadal could easily be outside the top four seeds in Paris and play Djokovic as early as the quarterfinals, potentially, if he's a number five or lower seed. Grand Slams do have the discretion to bump up the seeding as they see fit. They almost never do it outside of the famous Wimbledon seeding formula, which also recently hasn't been deviated from at all. It's just a, you know, a, a formula that's not at all subjective. Do you think that if there's a situation where Nadal, who's won the tournament five years in a row and nine of the last ten, is arriving to Paris ranked fifth, do you think it would be right for the French to bump him up? And I will say, huh, uh, I'll say yes, they should. Mm. Because I think that seeding as a concept, is not, especially looking at it in terms of how it's used in other sports, like especially like March Madness, seeding is not about what you've earned or what you did. It should be about what you're expected to do in the draw. And I think that Nadal would be expected to make the semifinals in three of the four quarters, in anything but the Djokovic quarter. So just as he can't beat number one doesn't mean he should be number five. I think he's a legitimate top four at least. I could see him bumping up to two. I wouldn't have a problem with, really. I would I would say bump him. I would say no, don't bump him. I think okay. the whole discussion about bumping his seating that rolls around at the French Open, I guess more so this year, a little bit no, I guess not last year. I mean, yeah, before. here yeah. is just dumb. It's just a stupid discussion. And it's not going to happen. Exactly, because it's not going to happen. It's just like total like clickbait. It's like people are like, no, the French Open is not going to bump Rafa's seating. No shit. Like, of course they're not going to do it. It's not. They don't do that, you know. And because they don't do that, they should not do that. And that's what I'm. And that's my issue. I totally understand conceptually the argument that you make on seedings and, and theoretically I totally agree. That's why I actually really like what Wimbledon does, but Wimbledon always does it that way. Like Wimbledon always from the get go is like, we have the right to change the seedings. We don't give a shit about your rankings and we're going to flip it around a little bit because we're the all England club and we can, and that's how we do while we drink tea. So that's fine. That's how you do it. But I think that like tennis, I've been thinking about this a lot. Tennis has this like kind of ability to just continually want to make itself seem like a joke sport <laughs> like it's not like le a legit real thing like like we just kind of make the rules up as we go along and we have rules that we don't even bother enforcing and yeah that's a rule on the books but we don't really we don't really use that rule and that rule is not on the books but that rule needs to be enforced like it's in the books like the, this whole idea this whole um cloud that that follows tennis wherever it goes just really really bugs me and so in that way i think it would just be so ridiculous where it's like well we just really want rafa to be in the top like two seeds so this year we're gonna switch it up like that makes no sense like I, that is just that is jv stuff like i'm gonna change the rules of monopoly because i don't like what the rules of monopoly are it's like okay all, the rules of monopoly are super flexible second of all I disagree with that. I think that if people are going into the French Open, I don't think it makes the tennis look like a joke if the guy who's won the tournament five times in a row is recognized for having a better shot than his ranking reflects at winning the tournament. That's fine if that's something that the French Open always did. But it's a rule. They always have the... the it's but in they the don't do ITF it. Rules. It doesn't matter if they don't do it. If this is they an exceptional case, they no. can do it this time. I disagree. I just think that that's when you start thinking, I don't know. I don't. I, I just don't like the optics of it. I mean, if it like, again, if it was something that like they were going to do like all the time forever and really like apply like something a little bit more subjective a la Wimbledon, like, OK, I guess. I mean, like, but then they'd have to like do it going forward. Like it couldn't just be like a one year one off where it's like, oh, we feel bad for Rafa. So we're going to do this. I don't know. It just doesn't seem. Doesn't seem kosher to you. No, I don't like that at all. 
I really I don't know. Like I, I like. I think that in extreme cases, which is obviously a subjective case, uh, I don't have an idea in mind of what extreme is. But like, for example, in 2011, when Serena was 28 in the rankings and had just won Stanford and Toronto back to back, and got put into the U.S. Open, knowing she could play, and she could have played Wozniacki as number one in the third round, which would have been ridiculous, I think, and really unfair to Wozniacki. You do it in these situations to protect the top players too. Like I'm sure. Djokovic wants no part of Nadal being a number five seed. So just, I I think it protects other guys too. But on the, yeah, I mean, it does, but at the same time, it also completely undermines the rest of the tour. It completely undermines, it would be an amazing, and I'm actually kind of surprised now that I think about it, that the, that the ITF or the Grand Slams haven't decided to do this as a big kind of F you to the ATP and WTA in terms of right now, like the slams, somehow over the course of time have become bigger than the rest of the tour, right? Like we all agree on that. Everybody cares about what happens at the majors. No one cares about what happens at the tour level events, which would be consistent if like every single major was like, and on top of that, we don't really, we're the tournament the players care about. And we don't really care what they've done on your, on your tours. We don't care that Rafa has sucked it up on the ATV for the last 12 months. We don't care. We're just going to see number one. Like that's also another like message. That's not necessarily great in terms of the, uh, unified non-unified nature of of tennis but i'm i don't know now that i think about it i'm kind of like i can't believe the itf hasn't done that i think (laughs) they so would (laughs) i think it'd be cool if they did more uh more adjusted seating too there's always that story that comes out like usually like a wire story every time before a slam where it's like seeds released for french open novak and serena top seeds it's like we fucking know they're the top in the rankings there's no fucking surprise that's true yeah, just mix it up. Make it make it suspense worthy, I think. Like if, if for the 2016 season, if the Grand Slam committee came out, issued a press release and was like, from now on, all four majors, no one gives a shit about the rankings. We're doing it however we want for our own seedings because they are our tournaments and they operate outside of the rules of the WTA and ATP. I would actually be totally fine with that. I really would. But this, but right now, this whole discussion of like, should we bump up Rafa's seeding? It's like, but the rule says that they they don't do it. So like... No, you shouldn't do it just for one player one time. That the makes rule doesn't say they, the rule doesn't say they can't do it. I know that's why I stopped myself. And, I know it said yeah. recent practice. They don't do it. Is yeah. the point? Okay, so optics wise, it just looks it just looks childish to just like change the rules just because like you want to. But if you want to do it like across the board going forward, sure. Then then it's then be, the seating day or whatever when all the seeds become uh, get released, it follows like what happens with March Madness, and that's great. I love that. Let's sure like Wimbledon rolls around. All of us are always wondering how everything's going to come out seating wise. That's great. That's fun. But that's how they've always done it. But let's like not let's not give special treatment is basically what I'm saying. If you're going to do it, do it. But don't get don't just do it because you just felt like it. I don't like it. (laughs) There we go. Final (laughs) verdict. Courtney Nguyen does not like it. Does not like it. One thing which Courtney Nguyen might like is a reality show. Um, and we got a suggestion for this from an emailer uh, named Claw Claw. So I'll just read this out. Um, who uh, says, Hi guys, recently there's been real TV shows, reality TV shows, uh, with athletes' wags, meaning wives and girlfriends, like basketball wives and hockey wives. So imagine you have to produce and launch a show called The Real Wags of the ATP World Tour. Which wags would be in and why? And what, would, and what tagline would their intro be? <laughs> Which wags wouldn't be in and why? What's your opinion of them in general? Are they as dull as they look like? It seems quite difficult to me to build a relationship being on the road all the time. So can you talk about love relationships with the players? Do they cheat all the time on the DL like Stan Wawrinka according to his ex or Martina Hingis's ex? Or what about those alcohol-fueled orgies with prostitutes past players used to have together in the 80s? Is it still common? Thank you guys. Love your podcast. I, I appreciate that you kept his last sentence in. <laughs> it's a lot. I, I was going to give it to you all there. So um, how do we want to start with this? Uh, wags and tennis, we, yeah, they're, they are a certain a definite culture. I think more at slams, really, when they're shown on camera more. Um, they're, they're a presence on tour. And they totally could be their own reality show. If Tennis Channel had a huge budget, I think they might have thought about it. Yeah. So, Courtney, as casting director... How would you think about assembling a reality show? And I will say that I have this assuming real tennis wives is referring to like real housewives. I have never seen this might shock people. I've never seen an episode of any of the real housewives shows minus like the five minutes before I change the channel 
back when the Olympics were on Bravo in 2012. <laughs> I just find I find non competition reality really tough to watch. Yeah, I don't watch reality television either. Yeah. So um... anything competitive, I can deal with. Any like if there's like a yeah. plot to it, like even if it's like Flavor of Love or RuPaul's Drag Race or Amazing Race, obviously on the higher end of that spectrum or Project Runway or you know whatever. If there's a point to it, then I can get behind it. But if it's just them wandering around lives, you know, making mistakes and throwing wine in each other's faces, then not really for me. Yeah, I don't watch reality TV at all. I have just a it doesn't entertain me in any way, shape, or form. And B, it's a philosophical thing about you know, for every reality show that exists, that's a bunch of writers that don't have jobs, and that annoys the crap out of me. But anyways, getting back to the Real Housewives or Real Wags of the ATV tour, I mean, I'm going to think of it as less of the best wags of the tour and more like a wag Avengers. Okay. I would want a cast that, like, complemented each other, and not in terms of, like, they told each other compliments, but, like... Helmet <laughs> with an E. Yeah. <laughs> just, just all I want is just Mirka and... Kelsey Anderson just complimenting each other. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, different personalities, bring something to the table, all these sorts of things. So I think, I mean, kind of the wag alpha has to be Mirka Fetter. She has to be. She is the she is the the archetypal, iconic, I would I would dare say, wag of the tour. She would be so gifable. <laughs> like no, I don't know if she'd be em- eminently quotable, but like her eye rolls are amazing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that a lot of eye rolls, a lot of gesturing, a lot of shrugs, a lot of like fake laughs, I think would be great. So I love the idea of Mirka Fetter on it. She would be the alpha. Everybody else would just, she would just shoot them a look and they would all fall back in line. It would be amazing. And what I think is remarkable about Mirka is for how visible she's been, we don't know all that much about her. I know. Like she's pretty, like I, the first time I can remember ever hearing her speak out loud, and I'm around tennis all the time. First time I ever heard her speak, I think, was last year at the U.S. Open. And I heard her voice, and I was like, oh, that's what you sound like? I had no idea. <laughs> um, and it was just sort of interesting. People, I said that to somebody, and they're like, oh, but no, there's a YouTube video of her doing an interview at Hopman Cup. And I was like, okay, well, I did not see that one YouTube video of her at Hopman Cup. But I know, saw that video, I she, and I don't remember what she sounded like. I mean, I think, it was just Roger giggling the whole time. Yeah, she's. I think she's an enigmatic presence. So I, would, I think she absolutely has to be... The sort of queen of Jordan on this show. <laughs> She's so the queen of Jordan. <laughs> um, Kim Sears, obvious. Oh, so let's do taglines while we're going on, because we apparently got a request oh, for taglines. Tagline. What's a so tagline? What, what, what would, I, I don't know. Like, Well, I guess it's like on Queen of Jordan, which is the only real exposure I have to this. It's like where she goes like, uh, it's my way till payday or something. <laughs> I am so, not creative enough to come up with taglines. You can issue the taglines. Yeah, I, maybe I can't do that either. I'll, I'll see if I'm inspired. But I don't have anything for America. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so America would be the obvious choice. I think Kim Sears, duh, obviously with the dogs and, you know, she's got opinions. We're, we're well aware of that now. She does have opinions. Um, clearly. And that's important too, is like making sure, cause the person has to have a presence, whatever that means, whether that means, uh, like, I don't know if, Mir- well, no, we know America has opinions. Never mind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you want people <laughs> with opinions out there. The one time we did hear America talk, it caused a huge scandal. <laughs> With the crybaby We gate. didn't even get to actually hear what she said. <laughs> it was really muffled. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So Mirka, Kim, Kelsey Anderson. Why Kelsey? Because Kelsey sees it all. Because mm-hmm. she is one of the, well, Mirka and Kim kind of like parachute in for the big tournaments. Kelsey's there all the time. With Kevin Anderson. She's one of the very few full-timers. Yeah. She's a full-timer. She's very funny. She's very self-aware. She'd be like like the all-American nice girl, I guess, like mm-hmm. on like the show. You know, like she's not incredibly controversial, but like at the same time, she stands up for herself. She stands up for Kevin. And she sees like a lot of the things that happen. Like, you she's probably the most relatable of them. Yeah, I think that's that's true. She's very easy to talk to. Um, so I would throw Kelsey Anderson in there, but how about you, Ben? Who else? Who else would you would you Other throw? names? We we did game plan this a little bit before. Yeah. Um, one name who you mentioned, who I think would be good, would be Sarah Foster, uh, Tommy Haas's wife, who is also funny and is doing entertainment things now. She has her show, Barely Famous, on VH1, which she retweets a lot about. So which is very good, exists. actually. Oh, I haven't seen it. Is it good? It's, it's actually legitimately good. Oh, good. I kind of was. I wasn't. I wasn't sure, but I finally sucked it up and watched a couple episodes. It's laugh out loud funny. 
Oh, good. So, yeah. yeah, so she would be on there if she would do it. And I think with WAGs, I think there has to be some sort of, like, on the Real Housewives show, like, some of them aren't even married or in a relationship. So there's some, you know, blurrable lines in terms of who counts. So I think you could definitely, for example, have, like, a Brooklyn Decker on the show, even if Andy's retired, if uh, she, but she wouldn't be in the war. I don't know. They have to find ways to meet up and throw wine at each other's faces. Exactly. You gotta figure so that they had to, to kind of be on the tour, I guess. Um Beck Hewitt is an obvious answer. She's just like a big celebrity person in Australia. Even though Hewitt's kind of a part-timer on tour now, she could be around some. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know that many of these, like, who are the famous ones. Well, let's not forget two major names oh. that need to be included. Maria Sharapova? Yes. And uh-huh. Flavia Panetta. <laughs> Flavia especially like Flavio Flavia Flavio as their couple name would be an incredible reality show thing like that this should be an Italian show focus they on should that. oh my god they really should Super yeah. Tennis is a channel in Italy tennis dedicated channel they should totally totally have a Flavio show yes I would watch that without subtitles I well care. Flavia would just be amazing I've just I've she is just so perfect for this on every level because she's kind of grounded, but obviously she can tolerate a lot of crazy. So that's like a perfect, uh, perfect combination. She's a bit of a temper, which is good bit for Bit of a temper for sure. She'll throw, she'll throw some wine. Yeah. That Pinot Grigio is not safe. No. She would throw Italian wine though. Yeah. She would. And, um, yeah. So we'll take your suggestions, guys. And if you want to have, I guess we could also expand it if there was like a, there aren't that many habs on the tour really. Probably do a male version. Griggs. Grigor, obviously. Oh, <laughs> Grigor. Yeah. We'll take your guys' suggestions because we are not professed reality experts on any level. Yeah, these I, I feel like I kind of, if anything, just put together like a panel of people that if they were sitting around a table talking about being a wag, I would be incredibly interested. Right. But so we don't really have I don't have. think we have this sort of I think this would be a good question for like the tennis island people. So yes. if you're listening, this is your bat call. Answer this question for yep, us. For trust, sure. We defer to your expertise. With gifts. Yes, exactly. That would be so good. So good. Thank you very much for listening to this show, no matter if you're married to a tennis player or not. We appreciate you listening. As always, you can follow us when you're not listening on Twitter, at NCR underscore tennis. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can... Subscribe to us on iTunes or podcast app of your choice or through our RSS feed or however you want to get new episodes sent to you automatically. So they'll be waiting for you there when you return to your phone or computer and be a wonderful treat. If you want to send us questions for an upcoming show, you can do so and we'll be very happy to have them in the next few weeks. Uh, It's a bit of a slower time for the next couple weeks before we head over to Europe. Uh, You can send us longer questions at nochallengesremaining at gmail.com. Also, we have new merch in our store if you guys are interested um, in a piece of art that celebrates the lack of friendliness on the WTA, I guess, for the iconic Lasicki Radvanska handshake that is available now at, at our store, which is nochallengesremaining.spreadshirt.com. And we tweeted a link to that. So you guys should go buy one because they will look good on you and they will be like a siren call to anyone else who might identify with it. If you wear it in public, you will find you'll meet your new best friends. (laughs) And I will say, I don't think that it necessarily celebrates the lack of friendliness on the WTA tour, because I think that that's a bit of a misnomer and maybe an overstatement. But I do think, obviously, it is a siren song. Anybody who walks down the street with this shirt on and somebody else recognizes it, you guys will be friends for life, or you can totally diss each other. That's also an option. But um, because not everybody has to be friends, it's totally fine. But uh, yeah, buy a T-shirt, you guys. We have other shirts there. We come up, we come out with shirts sporadically, so you never know when it'll come. Probably no time soon. But if you have suggestions for shirts too, let us know. We're open to clothe you. Now we're gonna finish by rant raving about whatever. Courtney, you can bat lead off. What is filling you with emotion at this moment? <laughs> in whatever me. T-shirt you're wearing. <laughs> what T-shirt am I wearing? I'm wearing a T-shirt that says. When life gives you lemonades, keep the lemons because, hey, free lemons. <laughs> I get it. Okay. So that's that's the T-shirt I'm wearing, honestly. Um, <clears throat> and uh, my rave for this week 
um, because I'm not in a ranting mood, is for this YouTube channel that I've, I've known for a while, but I've never really, I don't think I really talk about it. I tweet about it every once in a while on my Twitter account. Uh, but it's a YouTube channel called Every Frame a Painting. And it's these video essays, they last between three minutes and about 10 minutes, um, by this filmmaker named Tony Zhu, who's based out here in San Francisco. And they are just so phenomenal um, on many different levels. First of all, just in terms of um, basically what he does is he kind of gives these real good deep dives into very little things that happen in a movie or it or are a phenomenon within cinema that as a casual viewer i guess i would say that i am kind of i'm not casual i mean but as a viewer you probably didn't notice and and Mm -hmm. a lot of that comes with lighting it comes with how people are staged in one singular frame what it means when a director wants to do a close-up as opposed to a two-shot and far away all these sorts of things and he really breaks it down and um and so the instructional value is really wonderful. I mean, I've learned so much about cinema just watching his videos. The other aspect, too, is just he's in, he's very good at this kind of burgeoning media form, which is the video essay, um, which is not as easy as just putting a camera on yourself and like reading off an essay. And uh, so it's it's a lot of good edits and, and everything. And they, they're really beautifully constructed and edited and framed. And so it's really, really interesting. But um, but yeah, it's my not new favorite thing. I've watched them a bunch of times, but the ones that you should definitely watch um, if you want to see how amazing um, he is, there's one on Silence of the Lambs mm. that's called um, Who Wins the Scene? And it really teaches you about how the camera angle from up, up high to eye level to looking down and how Jonathan Demme chose to um, kind of put Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter in their first scene together. You see a lot of subtext that you don't necessarily uh, hear, which is great. There's another one looking at the work of Edgar Wright, who's one of my favorite directors. He directed, um, you know, Hot Fuzz, um, all of those Simon Pegg movies, as well as um, uh, Scott Pilgrim. Um, but it's called mm. How to Do Visual Comedy. And it's basically Tony Zhu ranting about the current state of of directing in comedy movies and why Edgar Wright just stands out amongst everyone. Um, and it's really great. And then a third one that I really love is one based off of Drive, the movie with Ryan Gosling, called The Quadrant System. Um, and it breaks down, again, how... If you break up a, if you break up the frame of a movie into, a, into four quadrants, how you place all the characters in those quadrants um, is, like another aspect of the storytelling uh, within any given scene. So I love, I love it when like pop culture things are elevated above pop culture and into like art and art usually implies an intention behind things. So Tony Zhu's series, Every Frame of Painting does a great job of like teaching you what the intent behind some of the great scenes um, that you've seen in in cinema, what the, the director was trying to do. So I really enjoy it. There you go. So you guys can check all that out. I have a short rant and then a rave slash rant. The short rant is very short. Um, There's a salad place in D.C., which I really like, called Chopped, where you sort of construct your own salad and they mix it all up for you. And for some unknown reason, they recently redid their menu and just made a bunch of horrible mistakes, Mm -hmm. including the most basic one of all. They no longer have onions. At a salad place, the makeup salad place, they no longer have like raw red onions. Red no. onions is necessary. It, it is, is a, a staple. staple. It is a staple. <laughs> I am glad you share my rage. I think, and I am. I got there and I was like making my normal salad, and they're like, "Oh, can I have onions, or whatever." And they're like, "Oh, we don't have onions." I was, like, I was baffled. They said they had green. They had green onions. Why would you have green no, you don't onions? Want scallions on a salad? No. That's for stir fry. What the it, hell? I thank you for sharing in my immediate. I have a new rant. <laughs> <laughs> They changed. They changed in their. Uh, they changed their dressings too. They got rid of a couple of the staples that I used to have, like the sriracha, whatever dressing, and the chili lime dressing. Which is dressings are fine. You can have your novelty dressings be different, whatever. But getting rid of onions, unacceptable. That's my small one. My bigger one is more of a rave about reliability. I went to a wedding this weekend for a friend I've known since seventh grade, and it was good, cool because I saw a bunch of friends who I've known since then. And longer, and we got together, and ha- one of them happened to have a N64 system, and so we've sort of recreated childhoodish days by like playing Super Smash Brothers and things. 
together. And it was amazing that this system, because like you see when you turn on the game, the game was made in 1999, and the system was probably from like 97 or so, that it still works like perfectly. And so I will rave about the concept of reliability. And like everyone I know who has like a old original Nintendo, Super Nintendo, they all still work. And so for the number amount of problems, the amount of number of iPods, let's say, I've gone through in the last uh, 10 years to have all these Nintendo products still working well, I think is admirable. And I hope that people keep making reliable things so they can become timeless because even if it's more profitable for Apple or whoever to make projects that are fragile and need upgrading constantly, there's just something nice and makes me happy about things that work from generation to generation. So yay durability and things. So that's all I have to say about that. Very cool. Yeah. So there we go. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be with you next time during Madrid and we'll catch you in a week. Bye guys. Bye-bye.